want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Acts. It's very easy for this morning to be about Tom Rempel, and it's not. As Linda said, this is the bridge we said we would cross when we got to it, and we're now to it. Where my family's a little tired of hearing about the Fox River. I continually say we haven't gotten to the Fox River yet, and that comes from a story with Abraham Lincoln, who was leading his troops through Illinois, and uh, they had to cross the Fox River, but the report was that it was at flood season and out of its banks, and the troops were concerned about how to get to the other side, and they spent the evening in a local pub, and one of them said to one of the locals, he says, so how is it that you cross the Fox River during flood time? And the local said, we don't cross it till we get to it, but we are now at the Fox River. Today's message has been 50 years in preparation. From the day of my conversion, I was challenged with understanding what the church is intended to be, not what traditions and legacies have made it, but what the head of his church called her to be. My foundational convictions have never changed. Though those values have been tested and tried, the truths I embraced in the very first days have only deepened. 29 years ago, a dozen heads of household who loved the Lord Jesus, believed in the power and the sufficiency of his word for every matter pertaining to life and godliness, including how a church ought to be organized and operate, we began a journey together that has been an absolute joy and a delight. Even in the darkest days, and there have been many of those, there remained an uncompromising, unshakable conviction that the Lord Jesus was the senior shepherd of his church and that we were but blessed to be under shepherds in his work. 29 years ago, as what would eventually become known as Faith Family was finding its life, I was invited to lead as a senior pastor. At age 43, with just 20 years of pastoral experience behind me, I was both overwhelmed by the daunting task and incredibly excited at the possibility of being a part of a one-lifetime effort that would get church right, as I understood it, from the Word. So today, as I seek to bring us back to the true north and reaffirm those basic core convictions that both guided us in the beginning and which have corrected us along the way, I do so with deep, deep gratitude to the Lord for His unfailing kindnesses, unspeakable appreciation for the brothers and sisters who gave all that they were and all that they had to serve the Lord in his church. They're heroes of the faith. They're legacy leaders. I want to point us back to the truths that are unchanging and unfailing. When I was preparing to meet with the elders on Wednesday and share what God was doing, uh, Actually, last week I said there were 38 million uh, people, uh, the great uh, resignation of 2021. I actually knew that I could have been a statistic for that, but I held on for two days so that I could start a whole new thing for 22. My heart went to the book of Acts in the 20th chapter. It's the Apostle Paul meeting one more time with the core leadership 
of the church at Ephesus where he had given his heart, his life had endured riots and protests and all those things, but it was his most fruitful ministry in that all of Asia heard the gospel because of what God did when Paul was ministering the gospel in Ephesus. He calls them 20 miles north because he's got such a great relationship with the church, but he's on a mission with a time frame calendar, so he, he doesn't want to get tied up in relationship renewal. And he said this, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And I was teaching you both in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of the repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll jump down to verse 24. Not that the two in between are not important, but they don't speak exactly to our situation. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I'm, I'm hoping that's not true. Over the last four years, as the elders have hammered out, strategized, written a cessation plan, what's it going to look like and all that, not one elder meeting ever took place without somebody saying, if Rempel gets hit by a bus on 84th Street. So I have made it a practice to go home the back way just to avoid that. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Over these last 29 years, Leaders in the church have shed lots of sweat, but we have not bled for the church. I said that, and then I remembered that one time at 2 o'clock in the morning after everybody else on the sweat equity team had gone home, Steve Peterson and I were still painting the south hallway, and he cut himself, and I had to go find a Band-Aid for it. So Steve actually bled for the church, but not the rest of us. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Though leadership often changes and though membership is continually in flux, these values will always remain. It is a commitment to these non-negotiable ten intentions that have stayed Faith Bible Church in the days of the past 
and will, if fully followed, guide her successfully forward into her unknown future. Several years ago, when Pastor George Lockyer, Rob Rexilius were still on our team, we, we, had, a, we had a loft at 8th and Q for college ministry. Man, I regret letting that go now. But anyway, we were gathered there as a staff, and we we're trying to explain, what, what is it that's unique about Faith Bible Church? What is our unique mission and ministry? And together, we crafted a line that never really caught traction for the church as a mission statement, but it has been emblazoned in my own mind and heart as a description of my own call to ministry. Equipping God's people through God's word to do God's work in God's world. That's what Faith Bible Church is all about. These 10 intentionals grew out of reflection on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. When the Lord had added to their number 3,000 souls, and so you've got 3,000 baby Christians, and the question is, how, how do you bring them to maturity? And the answer given is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. And there was not a needy person among them, because if somebody had a need, somebody else had some stuff, so they sold their stuff, and they met the need. And the result of that, in verse 47, was that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Out of reflection and dialogue on that, we have come up with these 10. And if you get our visitor bag or package, you'll notice that they're listed not necessarily in this order, but without definition. So what I want to do this morning, as we think about Faith Bible Church over the next five and 10 years and the incredible opportunity that's before us, that these are the things that will call it due north. This is, this is the guardrails that will promise whether we are successful in the transition or we stumble and fall. Number one, this was the heartbeat of Faith Bible Church from the very beginning, is we will live by the book. That is, the initial founding team believed in the full inspiration and the full sufficiency of this book. They were radically committed to it, even to the extent that we made it our middle name. It is, Bible is our middle name for a reason and for a call. Now, because of that, Satan is going to do what he did in Genesis chapter 3. He is going to try to undermine that conviction. He is going to raise questions about doubt on the accuracy and the truthfulness and the relevance of this book. But we are a church that is committed to this book and living according to it. It was this book that was the guide for all of our leadership gatherings and discussions. It was this book that we expected. It would be the, it would be the center of every fellowship gathering. It would be Bible studies. The Bible would be open. The elders would get together and they would, they would open up the word and they, when a challenge or an issue came, they would, they would search the scripture. Decisions were made on the basis of what does the word say we ought to do? And if the word said we ought to do it, we tried to do that. And then there were times when somebody would say, yeah, but I'm reading over here and I'm not sure that's the right thing. And then we would, we would adjust and change. But it was, it was directed and guided by our passion for this word. For that reason, 
the apostle that writes Hebrews, and we'll be back in Hebrews next Sunday morning, but he gives five warnings about departure from this book. We talked about it last week, and we'll talk about it next week. Don't disregard the word. Don't doubt the word. Don't depart from the word. Don't despise the word. Don't deny the word. We are faith Bible church. That is a non-negotiable core conviction. Whoever God has prepared to stand where I've been blessed to stand for 29 years is a brother who fully and completely believes in the truth of this book and will preach it with that kind of conviction. The second value is sacrificial body life, costly fellowship. It's not just getting together and talking about the debacle of the Huskers football or basketball or the joy of Huskers girls volleyball. It's not that. It's, it's the sharing together of the life we have in Jesus the Christ. It's the 16 one another's of the New Testament. It's a relational living of the Christ life. It's It's seeing in someone's eyes the need for a word of hope or encouragement or recognizing in somebody's life and pattern that there is the need for a word of reproof and rebuke. It's it's a life on life living the life of Christ and it is also the costly. I think that fellowship is defined in in verses 43 to 47 where as they were gathering together they found out somebody had a need and they took their stuff, sold it and met the need. Over the years, you as a church family have been marked by your loving care for one another. This is a confidential kind of thing, so the, the joy of benevolent ministry has not been able to be shared with the, many, with the many, but over the years we have paid for prescription meds for families that couldn't afford them. We bought airline tickets for family members who needed to go and sit by the bedside of a dying loved one. We've paid rent and utilities to keep families in their home and not out on the street. We have purchased and donated cars to single moms so they could get their kids to school and they could get to work to support them. You have delivered bag after bag of groceries to fill empty cupboards and on and on. Many of those, those are the ones that are formally done. There's all this ministry that took place because you saw the need and you generously gave. Number three. We are committed to a cross-centered message. That what is preached has got to be about Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, coming out of Athens and the great Mars Hill, philosophic debate and apologetics and all. He gets to, he gets to Corinth, and it's just a totally pagan environment, and he says, I determined that I would know nothing in your midst except Christ and Him crucified. If we ever lose the beauty and the centrality of the cross, we will fail. Some of our family have been involved in, out of the city in a, in a mega church that, that, that's been pastored for a number of years by a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate, a very gifted and effective pastor, but he has now moved to Pastor Emeritus, and the man they brought in to replace him just simply gives little ditty life management principles. It's not about the cross. Faith Bible Church has got to hold on to the cross. We don't craft our messages 
on a felt need basis, even though that's tempting, not therapeutic preaching. Every message has to bring us to the cross. My eldest granddaughter's husband, who grew up in our church, was called in the ministry from our church. He's a, he's a full-time worship pastor today. And he said, Tom, I have determined that I will close every worship gathering with a song about Jesus. If that doesn't fit the theme of the message, that's not my problem. Faith Bible Church, we will sing about Jesus because that's what it's all about. Number four is radical dependence. Radical dependence is, is, is when, we, when we named Faith Bible Church 29 years ago, we were, we were in, a, uh, in a dentist office conference room and there's a dozen of us sitting around and we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, we have this, God is doing, he's stirring this new thing, but we have to have a name, you know, you got to file papers with the state and all that. And so somebody would throw out, and we, we didn't have cell phones in those days, and Google and all that, so we just had the old-fashioned phone book, and so somebody said, well, what about this name? We'd go down and go, nah, that's awful close to one of these, or whatever. Actually, it was the youngest guy at the table that said, you know, we're probably the only town in Nebraska that doesn't have a faith Bible church. I said, I'm not interested in being faith Bible church. I'd like to be sight Bible church, you see, because... If you're radically dependent on the Lord, He is going to ask you to take steps of faith into the unknown regions, trusting that He has led, and because He has led, He would provide. Now, whether we are radically dependent or not is evidenced by when and how we pray. See, one of the, I would say, I'm speaking pastorally, one of my, my deep griefs as a pastor shepherd, is that in the early days, we were at uh, Union College. I, when, I, when I talk to young guys that want to plant churches, I said, are you ready to work harder than you've ever worked for the next five years? And when you do a church startup, you get to do everything because everybody else has real lives. There's one paid professional holy man. He has to do all the work. And so I'm driving around town looking for a place to meet. And, uh, and I finally... I had heard that, uh, it used to be Old Cheney Alliance, and, and then it became uh, City Light South, but they had been incubated at Union College. So I went to the president's office at Union College and his, his assistant, she said, what do you need? And I said, well, we need a, a room to seat, I don't know, 100 people or so. She goes, I got exactly what you want. And, and she took me on the elevator down to a lecture hall in the lower level. And God gave us a lecture hall in a Seventh-day Adventist university to begin a church. So we would show up on Sunday morning and we would kind of flip a coin to see who had to carry the four foot by four foot sandwich sign out to 48th Street in Prescott. And then we had to pull the hymn books out of the closet and we had to get it all set up. But we would show up early enough to do that so that we could towel down and go up and on the administrative reception area, we would pray. And there were times that we would have to break into groups of three or more because so many were gathered to pray. Why? Because we were desperate for God. We had just done a crazy thing, and if God didn't show up, nothing was going to happen. See, the problem with being a church 29 years old is you kind of learn how to do church. And, and so you suddenly don't realize that it says in John chapter 15, without me, you can do no thing. The reason that we don't pray more is that we are not desperate enough. 17 years ago, my youngest daughter, who is now with Jesus, had a miracle baby delivered. Chloe was born on 
election day, so her other grandfather and I sat in a, in a room and watched the results of the election to TV. That was Tuesday. On Saturday, I'm home on South Street preparing Sunday's message, rejoicing in the fact that God gave her a baby we never thought she could have. And they called from Omaha, and they said, the doctor just said that Chloe will not live through the night. If you want to say goodbye to her, you need to come now. I called Pastor Mike, who joined my team 26 years ago. I called Mike, and I said, here's the situation. You've got to get the elders to preach tomorrow. I'm going home, I'm not going to be back. The next day, Mike and the elders called the church together to pray. Sunday school classes set their lessons aside. And they, remember what Sunday school classes are? Small groups that gather with Bibles open. So you, you as a congregation, you prayed. On that Sunday morning, the same doctor that said she would not live through the night came to Don and David and said, I cannot explain it, but this baby went from death to life in 12 hours. The reason that we don't pray more is because we're not desperate. Number five, missional scattering. Mike and I have had this phrase that we've bantered back and forth for the 26 years that we've labored together. We talk about the church gathered and the church scattered. The emphasis on the church gathered is things like the exaltation, praising the name of Jesus alone, declaring his goodness and his glory. Exhortation, that is a word of rebuke or reproof or encouragement as needed. It's encouraging one another in the gathering. And it's equipping, which Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 and following says, equipping is, is both repairing and preparing, mending and sending. That's why the church gathers. Now, that was rather countercultural when Faith Bible Church was birthed because we were birthed during the church growth movement where basically what you structured Sunday morning for was like you wanted unchurched Harry to feel comfortable coming to church as he was last night being at the pub. And so you just wanted a ministry that didn't shock him in its cultural shift. And we said, no, the gathering on Sunday morning is for believers. The scattering is for the non-believers. The church scattered takes the gospel to the lost. The mission of the saints is not to drag their non-Christian friends to church so that the professionals can introduce them to Jesus. But it is to come to church to fall more deeply in love and awareness of Him so you can take the good news to the lost. Our driving passion from the first days at Faith Bible Church was summarized in this way. We wanted to reach the lost of Lincoln with the gospel. Working as if we were the only ones who were doing so, while rejoicing in the fact that many others were doing it also. We wanted to be a part of the church, but we didn't want to delegate away the gospel. We picked up a line in those days. I was at a conference, and Dr. Stuart Briscoe was just responding to a Q&A on the floor and one of, his, one of his small group leaders said, uh, Dr. Briscoe, what do you want our small group to do? And, and his off-the-cuff answer became a, kind of a mantra or marching orders for me. And he said, just be Jesus in your square mile. Well, Dr. Briscoe, what does that mean? Well, just see what Jesus would see if he was where you are. 
and feel what Jesus would feel if he saw what you see and do what Jesus would do if you saw and felt what he saw. You see, there are some needs that only you will ever see, and there are some hands only you can hold, and there are some people only you can reach. In your square mile, just be Jesus. Number six was unleashing the spiritual gifts. I am radically committed to the truth that everyone, when they trust Jesus at that moment, regardless of their age, God in his amazing sovereignty gives them spiritual stewardship, spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities, every one of which is absolutely essential for the church to be whole and healthy. He calls it in Ephesians 4, that which each joint supplies. So to unleash the gifts simply means that God has given you a unique ability and with it a unique sensitivity that that causes you to see things other people don't see. And so you're kind of looking and going, well, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. And so you go to a leader in the church and you say, have you noticed that somebody ought to do something? And our answer was, well, if you saw it and God laid it on your heart, you're probably the leader for that. And if they say, well, no, I'm not the person, we say, well, put that over here on the relaxed concern list. There's, maybe it's something God wants to do, but he hasn't provided the leadership for it. As a result of my passion for that, and I learned it from Frank Tillipaw when I was a brand new Christian at Bear Valley Baptist in Denver, and I saw a church unleashing the gifts of the Spirit, and it was stunning. It was jaw-dropping, but I picked up the nickname here at Faith Bible Church as Captain Chaos, because I just believed that God stirs. So what happens is that if you don't need our budget, or you don't need our building, or you don't need our bullet. You remember what a bulletin is? It was a piece of paper they would hand out like a program at the door. You did that pre-COVID. If you don't need our bucks, then go for it. If God's laid it on your heart, you see an opportunity, you're ready to go. Use your gifts. If you need any of those other things, maybe we ought to talk about it and coordinate it a little bit. John MacArthur says that a church that authentically discovers its spiritual gifts is a church that is always producing new and creative ministries. At Faith Bible Church in our 29 years together, virtually every ministry except this Sunday morning gathering was initiated from among the body by somebody seeing a need. I can remember we were just showing up at Union College for a Sunday morning gathering and a school teacher from Lincoln Christian named Rod Brexilius came to me and he said, Tom, I think we need a children's Sunday school. So okay, so Rob created our first children's Sunday school. It, it, all of the ministries were birthed from the gifting of the body, and God saw fit to bless it. So if we take the ministry away from the church, then we, we professionalize it, and, and God can't unleash it. But if we give the church back to the people, the Spirit of God can be trusted. He'll, he'll never go outside the covers of this book, but He can be trusted to stir and create and Number seven, participatory worship. When, the reason that our seats are set up a little bit like this is we tried on a flat floor to replicate our first experience. We, we had a lecture hall in the lower level of Union College, and it, it, was, it was 180 seats 
designed for middle schoolers. I mean, they were so compact. You could, I mean, the big guys, their knees were hitting the back of it and all that, but we would jam in there. They even had desk arms that would come up. So people, it was great for a guy that's preaching the word. But we were, we were in an amphitheater kind of thing where we were singing truth to one another. Participatory worship doesn't mean you show up to find out what kind of a show or what kind of performance happens on a stage, but it is coming. Now, the secret about participatory worship is that it must be in spirit and in truth. Because, you see, worship is the declaration of the worth of God. And it comes from the heart, not from the instruments. It's what God does in your spirit as you close the door on the family bus and make your way through the foyer and into the worship center. It's, it's I come here to declare his worth. And the reason that we must be relentlessly pursuant of excellence is that he deserves our best. If you read the Old Testament and the prophets, God doesn't accept half-hearted stuff, and he doesn't accept just good enough. He said to Malachi, Wait, what, what, what are you bringing me the leftovers of your animal sacrifices? Is that, is that my worth to you? But we as a church, participatory worship means that I bring to him the best that I have. Excellence is not doing it as well as everybody else in town does it. Excellence is doing the very best that you are able to do with the resources God has entrusted to you to do it with. Participatory worship means that we embrace the multi-generational fellowship. God's blessed us at faith. Well, I, think, I think we're one of the rare churches in town that actually finds delight in hearing babies cry in our gathering. We want your children here. We want your babies here. When I hear a baby cry, I go, ah, there's a future for Faith Bible Church. We want the young people here, but we don't just want them warming a seat. We want them serving and doing ministry. But we also, there's got to be room for us boomers. You know, the church of yesterday doesn't have room for boomers. And now there's a whole bunch of us. And it's like, where do we go? And so I, I watched that. You sang my hope is in the Lord. And I, I was watching, and many of you never even looked at the words on the wall. You knew it from heart. We have a tendency to design our ministry and our worship gathering to fit a niche market. And anything that's on either side of that doesn't belong. But as a church, if we're going to participate, we have to understand that there's grandpa and grandma, there's great-grandpa and great-grandma, and there are toddlers, and we want all of them engaged in the ministry. I'm old enough to remember the worship wars. When I was pastoring in Gothenburg, that was during the season where someone had the audacity to introduce an acoustic six-string guitar to the worship service. I'm pastoring a historic Swedish conservative church. We got away with it because my associate was a six foot four, 245 pound Italian from Garfield, New Jersey, that Papa Joe Paterno had recruited to play football at Penn State. When Jidge got up with a guitar, nobody was going to argue with him. 
I can still remember the days. You kind of remember back when we kind of, we had a different platform at that time, but, but we kind of sneaked some electric drums in on you. And then one day, Troy said, what do you think would happen if we put real drums on the platform? I said, well, we could go back to one service a Sunday because everybody's going to walk out. And, you know, it's like, so you do all these things. What's the point? The point is, is that everyone is to bring a heart of acceptable praise and worship, excellence to the Lord. Number eight is plurality leadership. From the very beginning, we understand the scriptures to say that there is not one elder. There is a team of elders. You read it over and over in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. For the first year at Faith Bible Church, we taught through, on Sunday night, biblical leadership in the church. At the end of that time, we asked the members of the church to submit names of individuals they saw in the church that they felt measured up to those standards. We didn't know that God had laid on their heart to be an elder, but at least put their names before us. And God gave us seven men. Godly men, not perfect men, flawed men. Some of our elder gatherings were a great testimony to how flawed we really were. But they were godly men who loved Jesus. They loved his word and they loved his people. I would say if I had it to do over, if I get to coach a church plant at any time in the future, I would encourage them to build in a, a breathing rotation. My son was an elder out in Seward at a church, and they, they recognized that you know, when your elder team becomes like the Supreme Court, where the only way to lose your position is to die or just to run out of gas and quit, and they recognized that, so they put in a breathing rotation. That being said, over the years, God has created a consistent rotation. I did a count, and I might have missed some, and if I missed somebody, I'm, I apologize up front, but I believe we've had 29 elders in our 29 years. Such greats as Dr. Bill Dick, Dr. Tom Dwork, Dave McCune, who just went home to be with Jesus, Rob Rexilius, Scott Dwork, the great theologian Del Emerson, Elementary principal, but a man of the word. Dan Morgan, Mike Cox, Wayne Fisher, Doug Meyer. Got a funny story on Doug Meyer. He's up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I didn't tell it in the first because he was watching online. I brought Doug Meyer's name to the elders one time. I said, you know, I think Doug ought to be an elder at our church. One of the seated elders said, you know, Doug doesn't know enough Bible to be an elder at Faith Bible Church. I said, okay. I said, well, would it be okay if he just visited the elder meeting? So Doug, if you know Doug, he's, a, he's, a humble, he's the most humble guy I've ever known. So he called this elder brother up and said, would you give me a ride to the elder meeting? So he got 20 minutes with him in a car. And we got home from that first elder meeting. And in those days, man, we spent a lot of time in prayer. And, and when he got home, the elder that didn't want him on the elder team called up and he said, that dude prayed more scripture than I know. He can be an elder if he wants to be. He became our elder in Shanghai, China, for six years. Dave Burkheim, Brian Dahlberg, John Hannes, George Lockyer, Troy Friesen, James Wilson, Jason Thacker. We still have some 
elder emeritus on our team, men that we're going to have to turn to in this transitional time for their wisdom and their understanding. Kurt Carlson, Kurt Bloom, Claire Fredstrom, Ron Stolle. Today we have a team of eight. Dave Drevo, who's been an elder three times. He goes along, he stops for a while, he comes back on. He's part of the establishment of the church. Mark Powell, Dmitry Osichuk, David Watson, Mike Hertzler, Greg Heiser, Brad Meyer. Those are the shepherds God's given to the church. But their mission, their task, is to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. By the ministry of the word, it's not just simply to have meetings where they argue theological opinions or not, but it's, it's to take this wonderful truth as the apostle Paul did and go home to home, people to people, and minister encouragement from the word and to lift up the church before God in prayer. And that takes a lot of time. So to do that, they delegate and they have deacons. We've got a lot of deacons today, but in our past, uh, we got to where we are because of a, a few legendary deacons, guys like Dennis Lyon, the architect, who I would go sit in his office every Tuesday morning, and he would give me three hours to put together the worship service coming up for Sunday. Dennis led our first deacon team until one of the elders decided to independently fire him for doing that. That's a story all its own. Brian Moore, professor of music at the University of Nebraska, spent a decade leading our worship as a volunteer. He planned all the worship services. He led the choir and produced a devotional to be handed out. He had a writing team handed out a devotional every single week to establish us in proper worship. Kelly Barnes, who served as a deacon in so many capacities, it's hard to explain. And you can't forget a guy like a Steve Peterson. Steve was the deacon of the facilities. It, we, we, we were going to go, you know where Cross the Line is on uh, Adams and 50, roughly 56th Street? Yeah, that was, uh, that was an old grocery store. So we looked into maybe God would have us there when we didn't have a building and all. So Steve became nicknamed the Hinky Dinky Deacon. <laughs> there isn't an inch of this building that doesn't have Steve's thumbprint on it. These and many others gave all that they were, all that they had, so the elders could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Number nine is next generation equipping. We believe that it's our responsibility to plan forward by preparing the young people for when that weight of ministry falls on their shoulders. So we've had the blessing of pouring our lives into college students. I, I, this is Christmas time. I'm getting, I'm getting Christmas cards from Washington, D.C. and Seattle, Washington and way down in Texas and up in Canada and all over. People that have been a part of our church where God used them in their college days. We, we, we laid a foundation for faith and understanding in their hearts and they're serving the Lord. Whenever I get a note from them, I look at what church, I go online to see what church they're involved in. And man, they are taking the gospel from Lincoln and they're spreading it around. Over our 29 years together, no less than 13 men have gone from our fellowship to become full-time pastors in churches. God has called us to be aware of those that are following. But number 10 is people are more important to us than program. 
programs are directed from the top down, and we just scramble around and try to find warm bodies to plug in and fill the slot. But people over program means you look at what God is doing and you ask, what can we do to enhance their discipleship and their growth? It is seeing the gifts in people's lives and it's matching them up with opportunities. It's non-negotiably relational. You can't put people over program and dismiss yourself from their lives. And that's the part that makes this the hardest. I have genuinely loved this church and the people in the church. You helped me bury my daughter. I helped you bury your loved ones. We did your weddings. When your marriage was falling apart, I sent you to Pastor Mike. <laughs> Here am I. Go find Mike. That's the hardest part. To love the church. But my dear bride said, Jesus loves them more than you do. He'll take care of them and they'll be okay. This facility, I've periodically, as God was wrestling with my heart about this next season, I went parked down by the garage and looked at what God has given us here. I, I, I remembered when it was just a cornfield and all that God has done. And you know, I can honestly say there was no, there was no inkling of possessiveness. I mean, I love it, and I, you know, I, I can remember one time, Steve Peterson, we, 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 when we were doing this, I, we painted these front walls so you could project off of them without putting screens up. It's 12 o'clock at night, and everybody else has gone home, and Steve and I, we're just cleaning up the things. We're standing back in the middle, and we both looked up at that wall and looked at each other and went, it's the wrong color, isn't it? So, yeah, it's wrong. I said, well, I'll see you here at 8 o'clock in the morning, and We'll paint it a different color. And I came the next morning and it was already painted a different color. But there's going to be a trumpet blast and there's going to be an angel's voice that wakes us up. And all of this is going to be left here. They'll fill it with grain storage or something. The only thing we're going to take with us is people. So to Paul, who had planted the church, who had given his heart for the church, Paul who exhorted the elders to protect the church, Paul who would write a letter from prison instructing the church, Paul who would send Timothy to the church to guide the church, he warned them about staying on mission. And 30 years later, Jesus wrote a letter to this church. And he said, programmatically, you're hitting it into the upper decks. Theologically, hitting it out of the park. But the great physician's diagnosis is you have a heart issue. You're doing everything right, but you've left your first love.
You see, the greatest threats over the last 29 years at Faith Bible Church have not come from the outside. It's always within. Whatever happens in the culture, the greatest threat to the health of Faith Bible Church in the 10 years ahead of you is not going to be from out there. It's going to be from within here. Faith Bible Church was born because people in Lincoln need Jesus. Your family needs Jesus. You need Jesus. That was our mission 29 years ago, and that remains our mission today. So Paul said, so now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May God in his grace do that in jaw-dropping ways in the decade ahead.